Good afternoon, everyone. This is Jennifer Farmer, and I'm the host of United Methodist Women's Faith Talks podcast. I'm also an author and a communicator for social justice. My firm is Spotlight PR, and I'm honored to host this podcast for United Methodist Women. This afternoon, we're going to talk about something that is near and dear to our heart and something that I am sure all of us are thinking about, and that is the questions that we should pose for people who are seeking our vote. We know that voting is an act of worship, and we approach this act prayerfully, mindfully, with intention, and hopefully after this session with more information. I'm really excited about my lineup of guests. I'm going to tell you a little bit about them, and then we'll dive right into uh, to questions. So I'm going to read you their bio, and then once I finish, uh, we'll, we'll go one by one. Karen McElfish is a lifelong United Methodist. She is passionate about her work with United Methodist Women. She has held many positions, including coordinator for social action and education and interpretation for her local unit, Arlington District Social Action, uh, coordinator and president of the Virginia Conference. I'm sorry, she's the Arlington District Social Action Coordinator and president, uh, Virginia Conference, uh, vice president, and she currently serves as conference social action coordinator. Coordinator. She chairs the conference legacy committee. Co-coordinated. Uh, she co-coordinated the conversations on a way forward and led studies for mission encounter. As United, as a United Methodist Women representative, she serves on the board for Virginia Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy, the conference legislative network, and the conference board of church and society. She is also a member of the Europe Eurasia planning team for United Methodist Women. Additionally, she is the Arlington District Lay Leader, Delegate to Jurisdictional Conference, and First Alternate Delegate to General Conference. Karen is a retired pediatrician, and she's now pursuing a second career in art. She's married and has two daughters, a son-in-law, and a granddaughter. And she enjoys singing in church choir and playing the cello and the flute. My next guest is no stranger to the Faith Talks podcast. Katie Pryor is a recent graduate of Southern Methodist University, Perkins School of Theology. She has a Master of Divinity with, uh, with an urban ministry concentration. Katie Pryor serves in the role of maternal health uh, coordinator or consultant for United Methodist Women, the national. Uh, as well, she's a ministry with the North Texas Conference of United Methodist Church as the executive director of GoCamp which serves underserved communities by bringing uh, the camp experience to local communities of North Texas Conference. Pryor is from El Paso, Texas, and she currently lives in Dallas. She's a member of St. Luke Community United Methodist Church and North Texas Annual Conference. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Sports Science from Texas State University in San Marcos. Her roots are deep within Methodism, and uh, she is very excited to be here, and we are excited as well to have her. My final guest this afternoon is Elizabeth Chun Hai Lee, and she serves, again, she is no stranger to this podcast. I've interviewed her before, uh, and Elizabeth serves as United Methodist Women's Executive for Economic and Environmental Justice, and she's also the Climate Justice Lead. Prior to United Methodist Women, Liz served as the director for Young Adult Mission Service at Global Ministries of the United Methodist Church. In that capacity, she spearheaded the redesign uh, of the historic US-2 and mission intern programs for the Global Missions Fellow Program. 
Uh, she also developed um, over 100 global and national partnerships. Liz has worked with the World Council of Churches, United Nations Liaison Office. She's focused on human rights, gender justice, migration, indigenous people's rights, and climate displacement. I will also say that um, prior to working with the United Methodist Women, I just was not very aware of women of faith being such staunch advocates of, of uh, addressing the climate crisis. And Liz does that exceptionally well. So if we were in an auditorium, I would ask you to clap for our guest. But um, since we are connecting virtually, I'll just ask you to send them well wishes. For our session, uh, this afternoon, I want to um, I want to start with um, with Katie. And so, Katie, as someone who's worked in maternal health for some time, and for people like many of the women on this call who can, who are concerned about this issue, how do we determine a candidate's commitment to maternal health? Uh, well, the easy way is, are they talking about it? <laughs> if they're not talking about it, they probably don't care about it. Um, <clears throat> and also, a lot of their actions they're putting forth, are they in support or in control of women's reproductive and health needs? And so those are the, some of the key facts that I look at to know if a candidate is for or against. And also, just looking at their fact sheet, looking at how they voted in the past and how, what they supported and what they didn't support. So let me ask you this. There are many issues that we all care about. And sometimes the issues are so many that we may not voice them each and every time. So is, is it possible that a candidate could be concerned about maternal health, but maybe they're talking about something else? I think it's possible, but that's also an easy bailout. Um, there's things that are more palatable and also more strategic in keeping your seat. And so I would think that maternal health would be your primary, um, for me, I think it would be your primary need and concern, but a lot of times it gets overlooked by other causes. And so you don't want to, I guess, X them out immediately, but it's also like having that open conversation. Like I noticed you haven't mentioned uh, the disparities in our black and brown communities that are affected by maternal health. Can you tell me more what your opinion and stances on that? And so those are some examples that you could do with some of your constituents. And in terms of the policies that, um, that we might consider asking candidates support to support, what stands out for you? Uh, the primary one I've been focusing on and letting our members know about is the Maternal Health and Quality Improvement Act of 2019, which is HR House Bill uh, 4995. And this bill pretty much improves your access to health care and reduces the discriminations that our Black, Indigenous, people of color are experiencing when um, accessing health or not having availability to that health care. And it improves your prenatal care and also eliminates the preventable deaths because we have learned, and although we're late to the game on stats of maternal mortality, we have learned that a lot of these are preventable. When we talk about maternal health, um, and perhaps as I, as I began questioning you, I probably should have gone back. When, when we talk about maternal health, what are we talking about exactly? So your maternal health is actually your period of 
uh, reproduction and pregnancy. So when you become pregnant, and, and it actually goes 40 days outside of your giving birth. So anything that occurs, um, well, let me backtrack. So I'm talking about maternal mortality phases. Um, so your maternal health is just your health of giving birth, the mother's health, the child's health, the embryo's health, and the process of pregnancy and birth and care after. And so when we look at maternal mortality rates, uh, those are actually calculated between the time of um, conception, um, becoming pregnant, uh, pregnancy, birth, and 40 days past that birth time, which is also not enough time as we learn to like track the health and progress of your maternal uh, health being. Uh, and maternal health is not just um, the pregnancy aspect of it and giving birth, but it also includes with your depression and anxiety that you may experience and your maternal mortality rates are included in whether it's a cause of birth, uh, death, or if you are committed, if you have committed suicide in that process or you sustain domestic abuse. That's all into your stats of maternal mortality because all those aspects affect the women and their health in that period of time. And just to make sure that I'm, that I'm understanding you correctly, did you mention if you have committed suicide? What does that mean? So if you have taken your life during that period of time. During what period of time? Yeah, so that in that 40 days of being pregnant and giving birth and post, if you uh, take your life during that period of time, that goes into your stats of maternal mortality. Okay, and you know, as we as we go to candidates' websites and as we um, learn more about them, what specific agenda are we pushing or are we recommending? Uh, right now, we're just pushing and recommending your basic care rights because right now it's difficult specifically for our women of color to just have access to this cares. And when they bring up the needs that they are experiencing, not just in giving birth, but experiencing overall health, they're often um, deflected and not recognized. And so that's when we come up with a lot of our cases of I was having these issues and I told my doctor, but they said it was nothing. And I ended up having further issues occur. And sometimes those further issues is death. When you talk about maternal health, are there racial disparities that we should be aware of? Yes. Um, so actually started researching heavily in our racial disparities about a year ago. And I learned that specifically in the United States, black women, not um, indigenous people of color, but specifically black women are 275% disparity in um, correlation to white women in dying in maternal mortality. And so for me, I'm looking for like maybe a 40, 50% difference, but for it to be 275% more likely to die during the process of bringing life into the world, that's a high concern for me. And so looking further into that, you're hearing these stories of I'm, in short, it's basically I'm not being seen or listened to. And so when I have concerns, they're not being acknowledged. Or a lot of our um, politicians will say, well, we have these maternal task force and we have these uh, resources available, but they don't mention the stipulations that are attached to them. And so one example would be 
transportation is provided to some women who need it, but the stipulation is you can't bring your children with you. You have to come by yourself. And so for a lot of our uh, women, that's not a possibility because they don't have extra assets for childcare and they don't have somebody just around to watch their kids. And so they end up missing their appointment. And by missing that appointment, the doctor knows them as like not showing up, no call, no show. And so therefore your resources and access to that transportation gets uh, cut. So, you know, I, I see that a few of you have raised your hand and I want to let you know that I'm going to interview each, each guest and then I'll come to questions. But thank you for raising your hand. You could put your question in the chat feature and just know that I, that I see you and I will come back to you. So during this era of, of COVID-19, when our entire lives have been upended and our health has been impacted, are you seeing any, any uh, deterioration in maternal health, any new problems that are presenting given the unique period that we're in? I won't say a deterioration. I'm seeing an actual spotlight. So like since we are in COVID and we are in a pandemic crisis, these issues that have been around are now starting to be spotlighted because our ability to get to doctor appointments have been extremely limited with the restrictions that have been put on. And I've been talking to different organizations and women and members uh, about what they're doing. And one member that I spoke to, they're actually um, developing birth plans and they have a network of doulas that work with these women who need access. And because a big issue was like, I don't have access. And I can't say that enough, like access is the biggest issue. Um, and so they provide these birth plans and they also provide them with uh, lawyers if needed, because a lot of the circumstances call for you to advocate for yourself with a lawyer present, which is concerning for me at the same time. And so it being spotlighted and recognized, I feel like even though we're in a pandemic, this might be the best time for maternal child health to grow and actually make progress and strides in a better direction. When we first started talking, you cited a piece of legislation that we should be encouraging elected leaders to support. Can you say that again? Can you state it again? And then can you also write it in the chat feature? Yes, it's the Maternal Health Quality Improvement Act. And it is HR 4995, and I will post that in the chat right now. Great, and let me just ask you one other follow-up question. What does it mean to be pro-maternal health? I would say to be pro-maternal health, you are pro-caring about the well-being of humanity. Um, although, yes, we have some new science available, but I am a firm believer that without the maternal aspect, we will not be able to continue humanity. And that's just my personal view. Um, so to be pro-maternal health, you are pro-humanity and the care for all having access to it. Thank you so much for being with us and for, um, for answering, answering these questions, Katie. So I'd now like to, um, I'd like to go to, to our next guest, and, um, uh, and, and that's Liz. So Liz, I wanna to talk to you a little bit about environmental uh, justice and, and the work that United Methodist Women is doing specifically. 
So if I were sitting down with the candidate, or if I were, uh, let's say, doing a Twitter town hall or an online forum with the candidate, how would I explain United Methodist Women's Just Energy for All campaign to that candidate to determine their level of support and also their interest? Great. Thank you, Jennifer, for asking, and it's great to be with you and uh, our other uh, guests as well. Uh, I think I would frame it in this way. I would start by sharing about the Just Energy for All campaign first. Second, note why it's important to me. Third, emphasize that solutions exist. And then four, ask what the candidate will do to, just, uh, to advance Just Energy for All. So for instance, I probably would start uh, with saying that um, you know, Just Energy for All with United Methodist Women, uh, in a nutshell, is trying to address a fundamental problem. Right? As Christians, we're called to care for God's creation. But on the other hand, most of us ener uh, consume energy uh, for our daily activity activities, like being on this call or being with, speaking with a candidate, by um, harming God's creation. And that the fossil fuels that we use not only emits greenhouse gas emissions, that is the main driver of the climate crisis leading to wildfires, hurricanes, drought, heat waves, et cetera, uh, but it also releases harmful co-pollutants. That's a major source of air pollution that directly harms our health, which increases infant mortality, lung conditions, cancer, stroke, et cetera. And on a personal example, I would probably talk about my father who has COPD. And so before he gets out, we check the level of ground level ozone, which is also known as smog, right? And it's produced when sunlight interacts with the pollutants released from gas and diesel driven by vehicles or from power plants. And then, um, which directly impacts his ability to breathe. And he's been hospitalized long-term, you know, uh, at the hospital and wondering whether or not he would live, you know, because of these irritants that have exacerbated his COPD. And, uh, so it is um, caring for God's creation and looking for energy sources that are cleaner is impacting so many in our own communities, including my father. And so we really need cleaner and less harmful energy. Uh, but the great thing is that we have solutions like renewable energy, like wind or solar, uh, that, that is healthier and cleaner, that's accessible. It can lead to jobs in our local community as well. So if we have that choice, I think we should move in that so we could be stewards of God's creation. And that's what the Just Energy for All campaign is focused about. And so I would encourage then the candidate, you know, to move in that direction and want to know what is a candidate going to do to advance Just Energy for All. Thank you for that. With everything happening in our nation, and you know, I think I, I fear that we we many of us we use energy, and and sometimes we use it and we're not even aware that we're using it. And so I wonder, you know, about our collective consciousness and our individual consciousness about our, our own energy consumption. But with everything happening in the world, um, how do we ensure that this issue doesn't fall to to the wayside? And one of the reasons I ask you that, Liz, is when, this, when, when Congress was considering a stimulus package, um, I, I, don't think that, uh, I don't think that there were enough provisions around energy usage, around utility shutoff. So, and I know they left without you know, coming up with another stimulus package, but my question, my broader question through all the words 
is how do we ensure this issue is front and center? Thank you for that. I think the important thing is, are we as constituents talking about it, right? Um, and I remember talking to some folks who are inside the Beltway in DC and um, on both sides of the party and uh, they don't always, the elected officials don't always talk about it because their constituents don't always talk about it. I went and met with our uh, state assembly person, one of their staffers, and the staffer had said, you know, it's been some time since someone has come to us about environmental justice and climate justice issues. It would be a priority for this, uh, you know, um, a state assembly woman if you came more often. So I think it's really behooves us to say it's a priority. Are we going to be focusing and asking those questions to our candidates and elected officials to say, this is an urgent task. Uh, we have a climate crisis at hand and we must address it. And equity and justice must be at the center of that conversation. Well, let me ask you another question. And to the people who are listening in, you may hear a little bit of skepticism in my voice, but um, you know, I feel like election time, most candidates put their best foot forward. And for women of faith, you know, we, we believe that we should be guided by God in all that we do, even in, uh, in what we ask, what we demand of the people who, who elect us, who we want to elect. But what's the best way to determine where a candidate stands on these issues? And I would echo what uh, Katie has said earlier, are they talking about it? Um, and I think that's important and often they are not. And so we need to get them to be talking about it. Um, we should check their web pages, their position papers, uh, and if they write or mention anything about climate, environmental degradation, concerns, uh, impacts, disproportionate impacts uh, at the global level, at the state, or even at the local level, uh, we should be looking at um, how they vote, right, and what have their positions been in the past. So if they have run for office or have been in places of decision making, uh, we should assess it as well. Uh, and the important thing is, are we asking the questions, right? We won't know if we're not asking. Uh, so I think those are some of the other things we need to do, make it front and center of the conversation. You mentioned asking the questions. So what specifically should we be asking candidates? Yeah, so um, I think we need to first, when we wanna know what their positions are and the questions, we should not ask them questions like, do you think climate change is real or not, right? We begin with recognizing, we start with a declaration, God has called us to care for God's creation, and there is a climate crisis that is happening that is impacting our world and our communities. Uh, and then uh, we note that scientists and the IPCC report urges that we must reduce global greenhouse gas emissions by at least 45% from 2010 levels by 2030 and must reach uh, zero net emissions by 2050 which includes the phasing out of all fossil fuels. So the question would be, how will you ensure that our state, our country, our local municipality is meeting the IPCC goals to phase out fossil fuels by 2050, increase green jobs to everyone in our community and ensure that we receive affordable and accessible renewable energy that does not harm frontline communities. Right, so we're stating starting from a position not asking for a yes or no. And I think it's the goal and the direction that's really important. Another question I would ask is recognizing the intensification of hurricanes, wildfires, floods, 
we've been seeing them <laughs> over the past few months alone. Um, these are both environmental and economic crises, right? Where families both lose homes, livelihoods, and their health are affected. So we need to ask them, how will they work to reduce greenhouse gas emissions while creating green jobs and also addressing the emergency needs of communities impacted by climate change? And I, and I think it's, um, I really appreciate the way you phrased it because it's not only at the federal level we need to do action, but it's also thinking about our, uh, the state level and our local level and what they can be doing as well, because uh, the solutions to address the climate crisis is very local as well. And uh, if, if our members here who are listening are one of 11 states where you elect your own public service commission, uh, and this year, I think there are 10 states that are uh, where public service commissioners are up for election. These are the individuals that really can have an impact on increasing renewable portfolio, uh, renewable uh, energy levels, ensuring there's justice and equity and affordability, uh, that they can also uh, ask the questions of these candidates, uh, how will they ensure that they're meeting the IPCC goals, that these are fossil fuels, are they increasing jobs, and ensure that we are receiving 100% affordable and accessible renewable energy. How do we push back from the fossil fuel industries? Uh, yeah, what's the strategy there? Wow, there's a lot there. Uh, I think one is to affirm and acknowledge that we have benefited tremendously, right, from uh, fossil fuels over the, um, the several hundreds of years, right, in terms of us even being able to communicate uh, to get from point A to point B, to travel, et cetera, for energy and heat. I think that's so important. Uh, but that we have uh, renewable energy, right, that's available. And why would we want to have energy that is unhealthy? And so we have regulatory bodies like the Environmental Protection Agency that continues to need to do its job so that the air is protected. Uh, we need fossil fuel industry to be out of the campaign lobbying business so that our voices are heard and candidates are listening to our voice, community voices, versus the oil and gas lobbying interests. I think those who are in the fossil fuel industry, uh, we have members who are and family members who work there. And so they could be part of that green energy economy. And I, I know that some fossil fuel companies have been transitioning thinking about renewable energy as the next model, right? But even then we need to push and hold for accountability so it's accessible, that it's affordable. And the way we're kind of envisioning uh, a climate just community and an energy economy that is just, that it's not, extra, um, it's not extractive and exploitative. Is it possible, is it possible that a candidate could be inclined to do more on this issue, even if they don't talk about it? I do think so. Um, and uh, again, um, I think we need to be talking about it, encouraging the candidates uh, to be focused on this issue, make it, a, make it our priority, it becomes their priority. Um, and the angle in which, you know, they may have some issues that they're very concerned about, right? Safety might be one, health might be the other, uh, accessibility or affordability. If that's the case, uh, they are, these things are directly connect, connected to just energy and just energy for all and to the climate and the environment. So I think helping to make those connections more explicitly are really important. And also really speaking as a person of faith and as a woman of faith, why it's important uh, to us 
because uh, unfortunately, um, climate change, the term climate justice has become deeply politicized. Uh, these are from other interests, uh, whether it's climate deniers, uh, climate change, you know, anti-climate change activists, et cetera, or, or uh, corporate interests. Whatever that is, um, if this is not an issue of red or blue, right? It's not about that. It's an issue of what is God calling us to do. It's in our social principles. It's in scripture that God loves the world, right? Not just humans. John 3, 16, God loves the world. And this love that God has for the world, we are also called to love it and then respond and make it a pertinent issue. And so I think making those connections are really important so that the candidate can see that it's not about red, blue. It's about how we're making this world and our community and environment healthier for all. And I guess my final question to you is during COVID-19, when traditional candidates forums are canceled, how do we get our questions to candidates and also get an answer? Um, yeah, so uh, I think it, I know it's being physically together uh, is ideal, but this is not uh, a safe time for that. So I think we can go to some standards, calling them, reaching out to those who are stumping for them, emailing them, uh, joining virtual forums or town hall calls. Another thing is we ourselves as United Methodist Women are part of other local communities and organize our own virtual town halls and then prioritize which questions we want to ask of the candidate. Another thing we can do, and Jennifer, you were doing some training for United Methodist Women on this is, we can write our own letters to the editors or uh, op-eds, noting the area of concern and asking one particular candidate or all candidates to respond to the issues. I'm gonna go to our next guest and I would ask you to um, just hang out with us and then we'll come back and entertain more questions. I actually currently serve as the Virginia Conference Social Action Coordinator and um, as such am a board member for the Virginia Interface Center for Public Policy um, and have been actively involved with them on um, a number of issues that we've been facing here in Virginia. Um, our, our biggest campaign uh, of late has been trying to um, get a paid sick day standard passed for Virginia. Uh, we were so close uh, during our 2020 General Assembly. Uh, we are in the midst of a special uh, General Assembly and um, unfortunately we're unable to get paid quarantine uh, time passed. Um, so we will continue to to work on these issues because it's so, so very important in this time. We've talked a bit about COVID um, having effects on um, maternal health, um, having effects um, or being affected by, I should say, um, our, our climate, um, rising air pollution levels um, affect one's um, risk factors for uh, having a, a, a bad outcome from COVID. And unfortunately, this is gonna be um, disproportionately so in our communities of color. And so um, addressing ways that we can provide people opportunities to um, have the needed time off to care for themselves, to care for family members um, without the risk of losing their job has been one of the key things that we've been focusing on as United Methodist Women here in Virginia. Thank you for that. And what specifically, since we're talking about the election, tell us a little bit about the, the voting work that, um, that you're doing. And, and, and I guess my question is, how are you raising 
key issues with candidates from all that you just said and your, your voting work, how are you raising critical issues with candidates? Well, the first thing we did, uh, I did was have conversations with um, staffers at the Virginia Interface Center for Public Policy. Um, as far back as in the springtime, thinking about what are our priority issues this summer? What are some of the things that we should be focusing on? And it became very clear early on that one of the key things that we needed to be looking at is voter reflection guides. Um, so uh, working with the Virginia Interfaith uh, Power and Light, the National Interfaith Power and Light, and United Methodist Women National Office, um, we were able to, um, to support the um, Interfaith Power and Light's uh, De, um, reflection guide, voter reflection guide called Democracy Values in the 2020 Election. And that's a great uh, resource for United Methodist Women. It uh, breaks down a number of key uh, issues, including uh, climate change, including economic inequality, including uh, mass incarceration of people of color, including immigration issues, and giving people questions that they can themselves focus on but also can then pose to their candidates. So in the process of working with this document, we've sent this out to our districts and we've raised it at various different um, events. Um, I've had the opportunity to uh, write some columns about it, not only for United Methodist Women, but also for the United Methodist Church at large. Um, and in fact, just recently uh, recorded a sermon on um, the use of the voter guide uh, for use for my district as the Arlington district lay leader, my dis district superintendent asked, has us or has uh, the opportunity to do uh, a worship service for our pastors once a month to give them a Sabbath. And she had asked me for the September uh, worship service if I would do that, um, which I felt was a great opportunity to highlight because it's so timely, the use of the voter reflection guide. So that, those are some of the ways that we've been trying to get that information out to our members in Virginia. Is there a link for the voter guide that you could put in the chat feature for our listeners or, or and also if you could tell people where can they find the voter guide? Certainly. Um, and actually, I'll do that momentarily or perhaps while I'm talking, Liz, you could put the, the link up. Oh, there she goes. She's already got it. Um, it, one of the things about the voter guide is that we do want you to download the guide um, because that gives us an opportunity to see um, where it's being used and who's using it so that we can kind of get a sense of its, of its reach. So, you know, Karen, you come to this work from an interesting perspective. You're a retired pediatrician. From, from your work with, um, from your advocacy work and then also your career, what questions come to mind for you, for candidates? That's a great question. We know that all of these issues are so deeply intertwined. Um, so it's really hard to, to tease out one area um, separate from others. So um, specifically looking at um, the area around economic equality, that's going to impact how one um, does in response to uh, a COVID-19 infection, for example, or as we're coming up on flu season, even a flu, season, a flu uh, infection. So making sure that uh, candidate supports 
um, quality, affordable health care that's available to all. That's really one of the key things so that um, all of our communities have that opportunity to, to have good access to health care. Um, looking at ways that our communities are disproportionately affected by the um, COVID virus um, is also impacted by uh, economic inequality. So asking candidates how they prioritize um, their support to um, bring the level of equity up for all community members um, so that we're all able to um, more justly um, manage our uh, and survive this pandemic. Um, and so that would be things like um, a moratorium on evictions um, so that somebody, especially at a, at a high crisis time, is not out on the streets and thus exposed more uh, readily to the COVID virus. Um, it's looking at things like a moratorium on shutting off utilities. And, and I would include, um, as a pediatrician, broadband um, internet access because our children are relying on that for education. And that's so key, so crucial right now in this time when kids are, are, are not able to be back in school together for very good reasons. Obviously, we want to minimize the spread of the COVID virus. So that's just a, just a smattering. <laughs> it's, it's a broad topic. Yeah, I can imagine people um, currently writing down what you were saying. That was all very good information. Let me ask you another question. You touched on so many different issues, and we are in the midst of, I feel like, several crises in the nation. Yes. But I also feel that sometimes if you are not directly impacted by a situation, uh, it can be difficult to garner sympathy unless you're just someone or empathy, unless you're just someone who has an empathetic spirit or you're intentional and you're mindful, how do we get more people who are not directly impacted by what you said to even consider this? And, and how do we get more elected officials? I feel like sometimes that um, elected officials and sometimes celebrities, if they are removed from the people they represent or removed from their communities, the empathy, the awareness of what people are going through, it can, it can wane. So how do we keep these issues at the forefront of power brokers, of people who will be voting on whether or not to do things like the broadband internet? Sharing stories is probably one of the best ways that we can do that. I think all of us, um, whether we're directly impacted by um, COVID or, uh, uh, or other um, pandemic issues, um, all of us know somebody through connections that has been affected in some way. Uh, so sharing those stories, sharing those stories with one another so that we all are informed as to what the issues are, that education component is so key with what we do with, with uh, United Methodist Women, that advocacy. Um, but also sharing those stories directly with our candidates and then our elected official, officials. Both Katie and Liz shared that we need to be um, in, in constant communication with them. We need to hold them accountable as constituents. And that means maintaining that relationship with people, um, especially once they're in office and being in contact with them and advocating for the positions that we hold. 
sharing those stories because those stories are so important. That's really, that, that touches us more directly, I think, than, than statistics. So I think that would be one of the key ways I would recommend. Thank you. And let me ask you this. Um, let's say that I were able to give you an audience with candidates and you had uh, 20 minutes to list off some urgent needs of families. What are urgent needs that you would flag for, for candidates? And again, I wave a magic wand. I put 15 elected leaders from across the country, put you on a stage and say, Karen, tell me what the needs are. What would you share? Wow, that's a, that, I mean, how long do I have? <laughs> Um, there are there are obviously really key things. So first off is housing. Um, people, we, we need to, to put a moratorium on evictions. We need to make sure that people, especially in this time where we're saying you need to remain at home as much as possible to, to be safe, then we need them to be a to have a place to be. Um, we need to make sure that they have adequate um, access to health care, as we've mentioned. Um, we need to make sure that they have adequate uh, access to good, healthy food. So obviously making sure that um, as much as possible, people are not in a food desert where they don't have access to good supply, ready supply. Um, we talked about utilities, making sure that utilities are not cut off. The basic needs of people in order to survive I think really at this point in the midst of a pandemic, come to the forefront. I appreciate that. And I know that you, you've done some work around um, minimum wage. Uh, are there any specific policies that we as, as the audience should be asking candidates to support that would give people an opportunity to earn a wage that really allowed them to take care of themselves and their families? Well, here in Virginia, we actually have a couple of opportunities. Um, thankfully, Virginia did pass um, a rise in our minimum wage. It is going to be incrementally implemented. So over time, it doesn't go right to, uh, unfortunately, right to a, a living wage level yet. But over the course of the next few years, it will. But the other thing that we can do is to encourage businesses to um, pay their workers um, a living wage. And so here in Virginia, we actually have, through the Virginia Interface Center for Public Policy, a living wage certification program where we encourage um, businesses in our local communities to pay their workers a, a living wage. And that's, of course, applicable to each of the different communities because here in Northern Virginia, our cost of living is much higher than, say, for example, the um, Lynchburg, Roanoke area, um, more to the south in Virginia. So there is a differentiation from one community to the next. But to encourage our business um, owners to support and pay their employees a living wage, and then to make that known to the community to say, X, Y, and Z businesses pay their workers a living wage, let's support them. So it's kind of a, a positive reinforcement way of doing that. And then of course, all of this information, then we need to be sure our candidates are aware of, not just our candidates at the state and national level, but even probably more importantly, our candidates at the local level, because they have such a great voice within our own community, greater, I would say, than our state and national uh, um, legislators. You know, I love your advice about um, publicizing the businesses that are paying a living wage. 
because it's an incentive for the business, but also for those of us who are consumers, you feel much better walking into an establishment and understanding that the people who work there, that it might be a little bit easier for them. So I, I love that idea. My last question for you uh, is once a candidate is elected, so we've surfaced these issues pre-election, once they're elected, how do we hold them accountable to do what they've said they were gonna do? That's a great question. And I know Katie and Liz talked a bit about that as well. Um, we need to be in contact with them. Um, they. <laughs> they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like we do. <laughs> so we need to, to remember that um, they're, they're human beings as well. So we can talk with them. I mean, I'm, sometimes I think we can get this sort of a little bit of a, of, a, of a distance, if you will, of, you know, oh, they're a legislator. But taking the opportunity. Now, a lot of um, uh, states have or conferences have um, a United Methodist Day or at their General Assembly or their, their state legislature. So taking opportunities and doing that. Um, I have a fun story to tell on. Uh, I go and see my delegate uh, every time we have our General Assembly Day. Um, and one year, um, uh, our, my delegate made the comment that um, I was the, I won the award for the person who visited him the most. And I thought, well, how is that possible? I only come once a year, but he remembered me because I go and I talk with them and his legislative aide, you know, I, I, I will call them about something or email them about something. And she almost immediately responds, Dr. McElfish, how are you? How are things? So making that relationship um, so that we can continue in a positive way to hold them accountable, I think is really crucial. That's just one, one aspect of it. You know, I love that. And it's something that, uh, that I think that we could do, we could all do more of. It makes me think sometimes when, when you know, I'm in the media business, but sometimes when reporters write an article that I think is problematic or perhaps they didn't include enough voices, I will email the reporter. And I have sometimes developed relationships with the reporters just by calling out things in the story in a way that's professional, but also serious. And I've been able to form relationships. So that's a great tip. So now I want to bring everyone back together, and I want to um, throw out some questions for from the audience. So, um, and by the way, those of you who are listening to this podcast after the live recording, if you ever have questions and you want to make sure that uh, we ask them on a future segment, feel free to email those to Jennifer R at SpotlightPR.org. So let's come back together. And the first question is for you, Katie. Uh, when you were talking about maternal health, you mentioned suicide. And there's an audience member who's wondering if we have any statistics on, uh, on, on persons who, who die by suicide. Um, so I pull all of my stats from the World Health Organization and also the CDC. And so those are my two primary sources for stats. And my co-social action chair also dropped in the chat box about our state, state health departments having those stats specifically for your local areas. But as a national, looking at a national level, and sometimes I do go into state levels, but looking at a national level, I use the World Health Organization and the CDC. I thank all of my guests for your contributions this evening, this afternoon. I thank you for those scriptures. And I'm so thankful for those of you who joined in to listen and to be a part of this session.